I still believe at the end of the day, and most syndicators might not want to hear me say this, but I think the best place for you to invest is in your own business. If you're a business owner, um, it's I, I've, I've got more money invested in my own deals and in my own businesses than I do as an LP. But there comes a point where when you look at several things, risk, because if I have 100% of my net worth and capital tied up in my own deals and something happens to me or something happens to my business or I'm all consolidated, centralized in a single market or a single you know, asset class or a single industry, that's risky. All right, welcome to another episode of the Legacy Wealth Podcast, where we help accredited business owners learn anything and everything there is to do about investing in alternative assets. And today we have on the show uh, my good friend, Mike Ayala, who's an investor, speaker, podcaster, uh, and founder of Investing for Freedom, where he helps busy professionals uh, figure out how to find freedom to live their best life um, through investing in alternative assets. So he's done that through uh, manufactured home communities, luxury vacation rentals, service businesses. Uh, and one of the most notable things uh, about Mike is that by age 24, he uh, founded his first construction company that scaled to more than 100 employees and uh, sold in 2014 at more than a $12 million valuation. So he made it on the Inc. Uh, Inc. 2,500 fastest growing companies list, uh, I think back in 2009. And uh, he's just one of my good friends and colleagues uh, from GoBundant. So welcome to the show, Mike. Glad to have you here. Man, thanks for having me. And I'm, I'm looking forward to this conversation as I do everyone with you. Oh yeah, Mike. Uh, so to, to start us off, I would love for you to give a little bit of a background or a story related to how you got to investing in funds. Um, you know, it, it kind of was all intertwined and yeah, I love what Steve Jobs says about, uh, you know, like it's easy to connect the dots backwards because half the time we don't even know like where we're headed. And I, I started a business, as you said, at the age of, um, 24, it was 2004. And oddly enough, one of the very first clients that I got when I started that business was a guy that had bought a ranch, um, you know, 20 miles outside of town. I got connected with him. He was out of, he, he was based in Las Vegas and he had bought this ranch and he just wanted to like redo all the plumbing and, and the houses and everything on the ranch. And so I got to talking to him as, as I was doing this project over the next, you know, two or three months. And this guy ended up becoming a great friend of mine, but he had developed over, I think it was like over 3 million square feet of, maybe it was 30 million square feet of like um, retail centers, just a huge number. And he was always talking about syndication and just like investing with other people. And, you know, as I kind of scaled my business, um, as happens with business owners, like I started having a tax problem and, and started thinking about, you know, passive investing, working too much. And, um, this guy's, you know, just never got out of my head about like syndication and investing with other people. But along the way, I didn't immediately jump into passively investing. I started buying single families and, and bought some mobile home parks, bought commercial buildings, just my wife and I, as we were scaling the business, and then it ultimately, like, I think it's kind of everybody's natural progression, whether it's a, you know, a dentist or a lawyer or a business owner or whatever, we kind of get to a point where it's like, man, I can only go so, I only have so much time. And I was running this business again, you said it in the intro, but I had over a hundred employees and, you know, I'm focused on my business and, and I have young kids at that point in time. And I'm just trying to figure out like, 
how do I make more money without investing more time? And part of that, I think, is a natural progression. Whatever we make our money off of is the natural answer to that. But then how do we begin to compound that, right? And I think the back to the guy that introduced me to like syndication, I started like really getting interested about like, what does this actually mean? And he started teaching me just from a perspective of, um, you know, like who his investors were and why they would invest with him. And so it wasn't really like a guy that was pitching me on syndications. It was a guy who was mentoring me and teaching me. Um, and he would always tell me, Pascal, he would tell me like, you need to stop buying single families and start syndicating. I never listened to him. Like, honestly, I, I sold my business in 2014 and then I didn't start syndicating until 2016 because I didn't fully understand it. So I was looking at this guy as more of a mentor, like teaching me how to invest and what it looked like along the way. And I ultimately ended up investing with him. Um, but really, I got to be mentored by him as I was buying my own properties for 10 years. I got to be mentored by him and he was a big syndicator, but he was just teaching me along the way. And so that's kind of, I think I kind of had an unfair advantage because I had somebody that was just teaching me along the way that wasn't actually ever asking me to invest alongside of them. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's... I think that's one of the biggest pieces that I'm hearing over and over from prospective LPs. It's like, how do you know about alternative or private investments? You have to first, you have to know about them and then you have to get access to those deals and then you have to know what a good deal is. So I totally resonate with that. What, what did that first deal look like? Well, actually, he's not the first one that I invested with. Um, the first time that I actually came into a deal as an LP, it was really just a small, it was actually a business. And I know I don't, a lot of people don't think about, uh, I don't, I don't want to go down a rabbit hole on this unless you want to at some point, but I think it's the natural idea in our mind. Most syndications that we would invest in as an LP are actually real estate related. Um, but mine was actually a, a, a business that I went into and, and the operator was experienced enough to know that, um, it wasn't a bunch of investors, but he still had a PPM and he still had you know, the legal documentation, a full PPM. And so I invested passively in a, in a, in a business deal with um, another business operator. Got it. Yeah. I mean, I feel like one of the big, one of the big things that I see is that first off, when you think about investing or when I think about investing, the first thing is, okay, well, you have the stock market that you can invest into. That's probably the easiest thing. You can open up a brokerage account. And then one of the next things is, real estate. Like, do I go buy a piece? It's, it's accessible. It's really easy. Everyone knows how to buy their first home. And so that feels like one of the easiest, maybe next things to get into. And so you see a lot of maybe operators who buy real estate themselves and then start syndicating that. But it's, it's cool to see that you went into that business. Why? Like, how did you decide the business was your first, you know, LP investment versus continuing to and and maybe you did. Maybe you syndicated uh, funds for real estate before that deal. What what timeline was that, and how did you make that decision? No, that was uh, 2012, and I invested in a. Um, it was really a cabinet shop, but then um, the 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 team that was put together took a cabinet shop and then turned it into a general contracting company, and it was just this kind of bigger conglomerate. And so I didn't even really fully understand the PPM, the syndication, which I don't, I don't think we have to understand every part of it. I just understood that I wanted to be a part of this business. And, and, and the, again, the, the guy was sophisticated enough to where he didn't just, you know, pull 15 of us together and, and just do some kind of like general operating agreement where we're all partners. 
Um, he was sophisticated enough to, to put a PPM together, but honestly, I didn't really understand it at that point in time. And, and I hadn't to your, you know, you kind of alluded to this, but I hadn't invested in real estate, um, as an LP or any of that at that point in time, I just invested in this business. And, and again, I had this guy, his name was Mike that was kind of, you know, teaching me along the way. Um, he's the one that opened my eyes to it. But honestly, when I sold my business in 2014, it was probably a year later that I got serious about wanting to understand syndications. And he, he told me to order this book by Gene Trowbridge, who I'm sure you're familiar with. Um, Gene Trowbridge is a syndication attorney in the space. And, um, I ordered this book and it wasn't, it was like $300. I don't even know what I'll have to look at what this book was. Yeah. It wasn't like a, it wasn't like a book that we would think about today. It was like the manual on syndication and and that's probably, I wouldn't recommend anybody start there, but I started really reading that book and that's what piqued my interest to really start understanding it. There's obviously, there's a lot better books, videos, YouTube videos and stuff that I would recommend today to an LP if they want to understand, you know, the true syndication side of it. Um, but that's really what kind of piqued my interest and got me going and um, really wanted me to dig in to try to figure out what does this actually look like and what should I be looking at? So I'm trying to understand the frame that you're coming from. So you have this business that you've been growing, you grew it to over, you know, you know over a hundred employees. And at some point, you know, I think the natural thought is, oh, you hire someone to take things off of your plate. Why? Uh, talk to me through about why at that point you didn't continue investing in that business or you, you started taking some of that cash and placing it in other places or private investments. Yeah. So I, I think, I think asking the why is important, but also like how much, right? Sure. Because honestly, at the end of the day, and I don't know exactly who all your audience is, but when I'm talking to a business owner or it could be a doctor, lawyer, any high net worth individual at all that wants to move into, um, you know, investing passively, I still believe at the end of the day, and most syndicators might not want to hear me say this. But I think the best place for you to invest is in your own business. If you're a business owner, um, it's I, I've, I've got more money invested in my own deals and in my own businesses than I do as an LP. But there comes a point where when you look at several things, risk, because if I have 100% of my net worth and capital tied up in my own deals and something happens to me or something happens to my business or I'm all consolidated, centralized in a single market, or a single, you know, asset class or a single industry, that's risky. And so I think what we have to, you know, really ask ourselves is number one, why would we want to invest with somebody else? I think it's diversification. I think it's getting access to other areas that, you know, Pascal, like so many of us in GoBundance talk about this, but you know, the shiny object syndrome, you're like, oh, I want to do this and I want to do that. And I want to do this. As a visionary business owner, I think I can do everything and I just can at the end of the day. And so I think the way to get access to, you know, other industries is really through investing with other GPs. And so I think there's a lot of reasons why we would want to do that. Risk profile, spreading that risk, diversification, access to other industries, um, even access to parallel industries. But I think the how much is another really important question. So, you know, I was just talking to some business owners the other day that really want to get investing passively. One of the things that we really talked about as we got into this is like, and we talk about this a lot in GoBundance with, with the guys, like how much reserves do you need in your business and what does all that look like? And then I kind of alluded this, I don't know if we were talking about it on the show or before, but you know, how much money are you willing to put at risk too? 
whether it's in your own business or in somebody else's deal. And so I think how much is a great question, you know, whether it's 10% of your net worth or whether it's 10% of your liquidity, whether it's 30% of your liquidity, how much are you willing to spread that out to? So the why behind it for me is really just, I love, I, I will continue to invest in my businesses. Um, but also I think we need to diversify some of that risk. And there comes a point where, especially as you're scaling a business, you need that capital, you need that liquidity, and there's so much opportunity for growth. But just like anything else, a lot of times we'll reach plateaus and you might want to shift even that how much. Yeah. Yeah. Are you doing, when you're investing, are you investing for cash flow? Are you investing for equity growth? Are you investing to get exposure to a certain asset class? Like, how did you think about that maybe at the beginning and how has that evolved over time? When I thought about it in the beginning, honestly, it was more about just long-term. Even when I first started investing in real estate, my original goal was 10 income producing properties a year, two income producing properties a year for 10 years. So my original goal was like to have 20 rentals. Like I thought, and this is as a 26 year old business owner, I'm like two years in and I'm thinking to myself, man, if I could buy 20 single family properties over the next 10 years, I'll be 35 years old. And by the time I'm 65 and I'm still slaving in this business, I'll have like this retirement nutshell. So we did that. And then when, to answer your question, when I started, first started thinking about investing as an LP, it was kind of the same thought process. I'm like, I'm going to start taking some of my liquidity and investing it in other people's deals for the long haul. So you and I kind of touched on this, but I don't really look at it. Um, and again, there's different seasons, but I don't really look at it for cash flow as much as I look at it for equity growth. Um, and I, again, I think there's different seasons. Honestly, I'm coming into a season next year. Um, because of an exit I had, I have a lot of um, passive income that goes away next year. Yeah, And so now I'm kind of looking at, okay, how do I generate some more passive income, right? So I think we go through seasons to make a long story short. Like for a while, I was looking at investing for the long term, but I have to make up a pretty substantial amount of passive investment. Um, 12 months, it's actually, I don't know, probably 16 months from now. But that's just a good example of different seasons that we go through of of investing for different reasons and purposes. Even some of that could be economically driven too, right? Yeah, based on what's happening in the economy, or you know, when you know, equities might be a good thing to buy now versus, yeah, real estate. When you're, are there certain, you know, diving in on that note that you have, you know, are there asset classes you're particularly interested in, or or funds, or um, structures of, of where you want to get that cash flow? Or are you like, Hey, I want oil and gas. Is it, I, I want all through mobile home parks. That's my specialty. How do you think about that? So I don't invest passively in too many mobile home parks just because I'm pretty heavily saturated in that in my own deals. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I'm looking for some diversification even as an LP and that doesn't mean that I haven't or won't invest in mobile home parks. Um, but I like notes to be honest. Um, I, to me, um, investing in like a, like a note fund is pretty, that's a pretty good way to get some consistent income. And, you know, it's, if, if the operator's done their job, right, it's backed by, you know, some level of security and an example of this, and this is, was not a syndication, but when I bought my first mobile home park, there was a first position note on it and I needed $85,000 down. I went to a mentor of mine and I borrowed the $85,000 down and he was in a great position because he said, I didn't know what I was doing. 
And I was a little concerned about it. And he said, I'll loan you the money in second position behind the note. And if anything goes wrong, I'm just going to take the mobile home park back. And so he was in a really good spot. And so if you're investing in a note fund or a debt fund, like, you know, DLP has some of them, there's different groups out there that have them. If they've done their job and they've vetted the asset that they're, you know, putting, placing the debt on, um, you're really in a pretty good position. So I actually like debt just from the standpoint that usually you get some pretty good cash flow off of it. It's usually secured by an asset. I don't need the tax deductions. Um, switching a little bit, like I, I in, the, in the next two or three years, hopefully I'm going to need some pretty serious tax deductions. So I'm probably going to, you know, start shifting my strategy, but I'm not, to be honest, I'm kind of asset agnostic, really. Um, I'm not, I love mobile home parks myself just because I understand it. I know it. But when you're going to start investing with other people, I think I would just encourage anybody that's listening that doesn't already know this, like maybe figure out one asset class and then find an operator in that asset class and, and just go into that for a little bit and just learn for a while. Because again, I'm asset agnostic. And you know, when you mentioned oil and gas, I've strongly considered some of that recently just because of the tax profile on it and the incentives alongside of it too. So I think you really have to decide why, you know, again, how much are you willing to put at risk, but then also like, why are you doing it? Is it tax benefit? Is it appreciation? Is it equity? Is it growth? Um, what are the reasons why you're really getting into it? So I, ATMs, ATMs are a great, <laughs> that's a great asset class. Yeah. I'm in that too. Um, what, but of all of all the things that you could be investing in, right? Like you can so you could be investing in your own deals. We've we've talked about why you want maybe diversification away from that. But you can invest in, you know, anything in the equity market. You can go to your brokerage and pick your stock. Like why why are you picking uh, private investments to go into over the other options that exist out there? So pr- partially because I'm skewed. Um, I've never. And again, it's easier to connect the dots backwards, but I, I've never really invested in the stock market. I don't understand it. Um, the last time I had a four, I have a self-directed 401k now, but the last time I had a real 401k, I pulled a hundred percent of the balance in 2004 to start my business. Like I'm just, I've, I just don't understand the stock market. I don't understand, um, you know, why somebody would just set their money and forget about it in that methodology. So I'm a little skewed from the opposite perspective. I love private placements because I understand business. I also understand real estate investing. And then the natural progression from there is to just invest alongside others. And so I it's I just can't, I don't see it any other way. It's like when somebody there's people that you talk to every day that have never done it. Just like people can't understand why they would invest in a private placement, I can't understand why people would invest in the stock market because you can get so much more benefit and be so much closer to the deal um, on the private placement side. And in fact, I have a whole report that I could send you. On. It's called "Why the Affluent Choose Private Placements." Um, just for this reason, like I think we're so much better off to invest in the private placement side of things because you get the direct access. You get direct access to the operator. You get to understand it. Um, you get to see the smaller deals. You get to understand what's going on from a micro perspective in localized economies. Um, and then you get to choose your asset class. So I love it. Yeah. And you get to pick what rabbit hole you want to go down. <clears throat> Before the show, we talked about all the different types of things that you've invested in. And one of the ones that I, I'd probably say I'm the most interested in and would love to go down a rabbit hole if you're cool with it is, is land entitlement. So 
can, can you talk to us about that? Like, wh- what do those deals look like? What, why do you invest in them? What makes them interesting to you? Yeah. Well, if you need more uh, podcast guests, you should talk to Cody Bugen, um, who's a GoBundance member. He's on the list. Yeah, I've I've invested with him in his deal, um, which was my first. Um, it was my first syndication. I've I've invested in some land deals before, um, but not as a syndication. So this was my first real you know investment as an LP, and I just love the model because um, you know they're out looking for. I won't steal his thunder, but they're basically looking for off market, undervalued properties that are you know zoned agricultural. So they get them at a great deal. Um, they get them with low money down because what they basically do is go approach off market sellers and tell them, Hey, look, your, your land is worth $10 today. When I'm done with it, it's going to be worth 20. Um, and obviously that's, but, um, I'll give you 20. Anybody else would give you 10, but, but you're going to get paid when, when I sell the land. So you're going to get paid in two years or whatever the timeline is. And so they get this land at a good price with low money down. And then Cody and his team, they go through this process where they take it through, you know, zoning and entitlements and they do all the work with the city and they get the engineering done. They get everything approved through the city council and all the plat maps and everything else. And then they take it to a KB Homes or a Toll Brothers or Lenar or whatever these big companies are. And without ever putting a shovel in the ground, they make this property worth, you know, let's say 40 or $50 instead of... so. Somebody would buy it for 10. They're going to offer the seller 20. They're going to make it worth 50. And they pay the seller when Lennar buys it from them for 50. So I just love this model because Cody's team has really, um, you know, they've been doing this for 25 years and they know the process and they're really good at it. But I get access to something that I would never want to go through. I don't want to learn all that, but I'm super intrigued by it and you get the upside. So, um, and Cody pays a, you know, a pretty good pref because these are short, you know, two to three year projects generally. And we kind of talked about this, like I hear two or three years, maybe we go through a time where my money's going to be locked up for five. I think sometimes we get this focus on two years, but just because something generally takes Cody two years to get done, doesn't mean it couldn't take longer, but he's been, they've done a pretty good job so far. So I'm, I really like that asset class. It's pretty great. Yeah. I mean, just to riff on it, I think, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but it sounds like an investment where the risk is relatively low because they're putting all of the they're they're mitigating the risk by paying the owner at the end of the deal. Yeah. Yeah. The risk is really so what they'll do sometimes and again I'm I this is just from a macro perspective. Yeah. I didn't I didn't get in the weeds on it, but they'll they'll pay the owner some kind of interest along the way, some kind of carried interest for one year, two years. And then Cody has cost, you know, it might be a hundred, 200, $300,000 through the process, but kind of worst case scenario, if something happens along the way, maybe you're out three or 400 grand, not 2 million. You know, if you would have paid the, the seller 2 million up front, and then something went south or you have to carry it for five years, you're, you're out all that money, but it's really just Cody's carrying cost and the cost of his, you know, consultants and team, and then maybe some carried um, interest along the way. So, so, yeah, so, great so is this a deal that, you know, you've been, you've done some land deals before this and you knew Cody and it came up and that's how, you know, that's how you got invested in the deal or, or how, 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 how did that work out? Yeah. So I've, I've done some land deals. I've done some small land development. Um, I have 550 acres in Nevada that I've, um, was a partnership that we put together pro- 
I shouldn't say this, but probably should have been a syndication. It was just a partnership. I didn't know back then. This was something that we did in 2007. Um, so it was a 550 acre development. And I was fortunate enough just being one of the investors in that. And I was one of the lead investors. Um, we met a development group out of Phoenix that flew up to uh, Nevada where the land was and did a bunch of due diligence. We flew to Phoenix and saw a bunch of their developments. I got to see the, you know, kind of how they structured the deal because I was on the seller side. They went through two years of um, same thing, basically going through entitlements and getting all this stuff done. And then their partnership went into a legal battle. They had like a $180 million lawsuit out of Phoenix that, that buried these guys. And so they ended up, we ended up just getting our land back with like the entitlements being like 70% of the way done. Um, so I, I got to understand it, you know, from, I guess, from being an insider on the seller side. Um, so I've never done it myself, but I've been a part of some small developments and then that one. And then, and I just got to know Cody. Cody's one of my greatest friends. I've gotten to know him, you know, over three or four years. And the minute he said, dude, I'm launching a fund and here's what it looks like. I'm like, dude, put me in. Um, and I would say, I would say I'm invested with Cody more because I know him than because I understand land entitlements. Yes, I understand it, but I probably would have invested with Cody um, even if I didn't understand it, I probably would have made him help me understand it better. Um, but honestly, I, I know enough about it and I know a lot about Cody. So it's a win-win. So, uh, wh why do you, so you've invested in a bunch of real estate only things. Uh, why, why not diversify into other asset classes? Um, so I do plan on diversifying into other <laughs> asset classes. Um, I, I think that I think the question and really probably the the key answer to that is like I have to have a level of understanding um, for me to get comfortable investing in a in in a new asset class. And here's an example: I've got zero I've got zero experience when it comes to self storage. None. Um, I've built self storage for other people. Um, I've analyzed self-storage as a potential acquisition myself back in the day when, you know, when I was going to, when I was buying real estate, but I don't really, I don't understand the operations. I don't understand what it would take to be successful in it. Um, again, we're back to real estate, but I think when, when we, when we start talking about other asset classes like business or whatever, I just have to know the operator and I have to understand it enough. I think there's a point where we have to be good passive investors. And what does a passive investor do? They vet the operator. They understand enough about the asset class to give that operator their money and then be a passive investor. Um, and I think there's a, I think there's a lot of people that think they want to be passive investors that a GP will probably actually never let you invest in a deal ever again um, because you don't actually want to be a passive investor. You want to be a GP or you want to be an operator. So I will invest in other asset classes, businesses, um, oil and gas. I, I'm looking at a, there's a guy that I was on his podcast that he's got some preferred investments in SpaceX. I'm curious, like I'm interested, but I don't understand it, man. Like, do I want some access to like moonshot stuff? Sure. But I still have to have some level of understanding around it. Yeah. So we, we, a little bit before the show, we talked a little bit about how you think about macroeconomic trends and how that influences, do you, do you have, so like, do you look at these economic trends and then say, oh, I should make, I want to become more interested in this asset class. Let me learn about it. Or 
how do you think about the macro part of investing and how does that play into what you are actually investing in? I think it still comes back to something that I can understand. And at the end of the day, I'm a pretty simple fellow. Um, when it comes to like SpaceX or Bitcoin or, you know, investing in some crypto mining fund or whatever, I have some exposure to Bitcoin, but it's not exposure that's going to like, you know, impact me. I, I sleep at night, whether Bitcoin's at, you know, 60,000 or 18,000. Yeah. I have to understand it at the end of the day. And honestly, there's two things that I'm fully convinced of. Um, real estate will perform well over time. And then there are businesses. I'm just going to say this. Like, I actually think that the opportunity that we had in real estate the last 10 or 12 years is not going to be as great the next 10 or 12 years. Is there no. still going to be great opportunities? Sure. But I think, I think the opportunity that we had the last 10 years, we now have in small businesses in America. And I come from the plumbing and HVAC industry. We may have talked about this before, but as soon as I get some stuff off my plate in the mobile home park space, I'm going to put a fund together and start buying HVAC companies because that's what I know. And I think the opportunity um, in America is in these businesses that, you know, an entire generation of entrepreneurs that started these boring businesses. If you think about the millionaire next door, like the, the majority of millionaires are plumbers, they're bakery owners, they're people that have these like boring businesses that people need. And so when I think of this from a macro, back to your question, when I think about things from a macroeconomic perspective, I know there's a ton of AI and tech and software and all kinds of stuff that I can invest in, but I'm probably not going to because I don't understand it and I don't really want to. But when I think about things from a macro perspective, man, at the end of the day, people are always going to need air conditioning. They're always going to need heating. They're always going to need pest control. They're always going to need landscaping. So I, I just, I keep it simple, man. What are the things that people are going to need forever? Even in the real estate side, the reason why I love manufactured housing, it's affordable housing. People need affordable housing. It's not going anywhere. So I try to take the macro and just condense it down to like, what do I know people are going to need and buy? Totally. When you, you made a comment earlier about being a passive investor as a, as a fund manager yourself and, you know, raising capital and, and also investing in your own deals. What do you think, what is the ideal passive investor look like? What, what do they know? What should they understand? How should like, what, what expectations should they have of a fund manager? What's appropriate? Yeah. One thing that I'll, and you and I've talked about this, but I think you love to educate, right? Yeah, totally. And I don't, I don't want to get you in trouble here, but um, <laughs> I think you really have to understand. I think you really have to understand the person that you're going into investing with and whether, you know, it's a cut and dry fund, like, Hey, you're going to do X. I'm going to do Y. We're going to put out our updates. Um, ask your questions of the investor relations people. Um, it's a cut and dry black and white transactional relationship versus there's some fund operators out there who truly love to educate and they lead with education and um, they're okay continuing to educate through you know, webinars, through their updates. Um, so I think, I think just as important as you know, understanding the asset class that you're investing in with somebody passively and then vetting the operator, I think just as important as knowing like who you're investing with. Like is, and I know this isn't GPLP, but like 
Blackstone does not want to educate us. Right. And there's some really big funds out there that are on the private side too, private placements that, you know, they don't want to educate us either. So as a, as a passive investor, if you want to get into somebody's investment as an LP, it and you want the education piece, make sure you're investing with a GP that likes to lead with education. And there's plenty of them out there because if you want to ask a million, 10 questions on webinars about, you know, the, the, the little things in the deal and getting the weeds on it, make, just make sure you're investing with somebody that likes to educate. Yeah. I'd imagine what are the craziest, you know, things or misunderstandings that you've heard raising money from LPs that kind of make you scratch your head? I think when we kind of talked about this a little bit, but I think the expectation around timelines and horizons, um, I think newer LPs sometimes think that, you know, because, and by the way, I've had problems on both sides. Um, you know, I told you off camera, I haven't had a deal that I invested in go completely South, but there's always challenges. Um, and one of my mentors, Ken McElroy always says, you know, sometimes the prettier the brochure, the worse the deal, right? At the end of the day, we have to understand that capital raising is, is, a, is it's just like any other business and there's marketing and there's sales involved and there's projections and there's pro formas. But I think one of the, I think where we get maybe off kilter the most is when, you know, if we see something that has a three-year horizon or a five-year horizon in it, I mean, unless they're saying we are going to exit this, you know, 60 months from now, period, um, really just dig into these are the these are the GP's expectations. When you read a private placement, though, um, my, one of my first attorneys, uh, Mauricio, always talked about how a PP. Uh, so an executive summary is all the reasons why you should invest in a deal, and then the PPM is all the reasons why you shouldn't. So it's kind of like you go see your doctor, and they're like, "Yeah, you should definitely have surgery on this hernia because your life is going to be better." But then the day you go into surgery, they're like, "You might die. Like you might not ever wake up. Like." we might cut off your wrong foot, even though it was going to be a hernia. And so I think as LP, and those are obviously extreme examples, but I think as an LP, we just need to set expectations that like, if you want to guarantee, like in, invest in government bonds at, you know, three and a half percent, because that's about like, that's about as guaranteed. I don't know that the, at some point in time, I'm not sure that our treasury bonds are going to, you know, be paid, but but I think, you know, six to 12 month treasury bonds are probably your greatest guarantee. And so I think one of the biggest things where we get off kilter is the time horizons and the expectation on when you're going to get your capital back. The other thing too, if you want to set expectation on when you're going to get your capital back, that's why I like notes too. Because if you have a 12 month note, like literally you have to get paid off in 12 months. And if you don't, then they need to ask you for an extension or, you know, you can foreclose or whatever, go after that deed of trust. And so when you're going into a passive investment as an LP, just really pay attention to that time horizon and realize that just because somebody's projecting three or five years on something, a return of capital or a refinance or whatever, things happen and those are not black and white exit points. When you, I, I get, I get, and look, I've been in enough deals to where I also know this, also being an operator, that things don't always go according to plan or as projected. But what, what are you expecting? Uh, what kind of communications do you expect? Uh, I mean, you even talked about um, about how you look at reports. Uh, what expectations do you have for reporting or what what expectations do you have of the GP? What's a reasonable expectation for me to have? Okay, cool. Like the projections say five years, but you know, we're six years in and I still haven't seen anything. Is it like, hey, you know, I'm getting upset with the GP. Is that appropriate? Is that, you know, uh, walk me through that. 
Yeah, it's definitely appropriate. Um, and I'll, I'll, I'll be honest with you from the operations side too. Like I had a situation where we're missing time horizons. Some of it, some of it was economically driven. Um, some of it was internal challenges, but at the end of the day, you know, where we really messed up was not communicating. Um, and you know, some of that was internal restructuring and, and having to step in. And so I I've been on both sides of it, um, where, you know, I didn't communicate well. And honestly, if you communicate 99% of people are, you know, super cool. We all understand what are you looking for in terms of reporting? What's appropriate when, when you're thinking about, or when you're investing with GPs? You know, I think the normal cadence that we can expect is, is, you know, quarter quarterly reporting. And, and I've mentioned this to you. I'm, I'm kind of a bad example on this because a lot of the deals that I'm invested with, I'm invested with people that I, you know, trust and, and, uh, I'm not a big data guy anyway, which I, I know, I, I think I know you are. Um, so I think quarterly is the expectation. And, um, I think as far as, you know, what the expectation are, it's an, it's an operations report. It's the financials. Um, I think the bigger thing too, is like knowing, and if you're already an LP, you may, may have experienced some of this, but it's getting harder and harder to get K ones done and timing on, you know, updates. And so I think that's another big shift that we have to get, um, comfortable with, with expectations as your portfolio grows, you know, somebody who's just always, I've ran my own business for years. And so I always just extended, but there's so many people that, you know, they just have their job, they have their self-employed business or whatever. And they're just religious about filing on time. And there's a lot of operators and a lot of CPAs. And I think it's getting worse that are extremely overloaded. And as your investment portfolio gets spread between more operators and more operators, um, are having more challenges with CPAs. I think extension on K ones is a big part of reporting that a lot of LPs um, don't think about or understand up front too. So if that's really important to you, that should be part of your checklist that you're asking your operator. Yeah, I've, I've by default now just started uh, filing an extension every year because I mean, even some of the investments I'm in right now, they're still still working on getting K ones to me for for last year because also they can still. I mean, there are some funds just. Uh, educational moment, there are some funds where you can invest in t- uh, a few months into the next year and write off some of those uh, investments as for the previous year. So I, I know I know that's particularly happening in one of my oil and gas investments. And so that that's now just an expectation of mine. So, so I get that. Uh, Mike, this was awesome. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Loved having you on. And so it's, again, great to see your face. Yeah, man. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. All right, everyone. Take care.